Amen. I am uh, so grateful to be able to share the morning with you in worship today and uh, to be able to drive up here. I'm, I'm from Dallas. I live in Dallas, Texas, so uh, you can imagine the pressure about COVID down there and all the other stuff that's going on. It was nice to be able to get out of there, drive up to Nashville where I have uh, two, I, our son lives there with his wife and three grandkids, uh, and so we celebrated their birthdays, which happen around now, and that was a real relief just to get out of town and sort of get away from all the stresses that go with my regular daily life. And then to be able to take the hour-long drive from Nashville up to here was unbelievable. And if you guys don't thank God every day for your landscape and for the beauty of your community, you should be ashamed because it is a magnificent place. And the beauty of it really does remind you that when all the arguing, the bickering among all the people that goes on all the time, whether on political sides or other issues or decisions about what's going to happen because of this crisis and that crisis, you know, the trees are still there, the mountains are still there, and most of all, the sky is still there looking down and, as the psalm we're going to talk about says, declaring the glory of God. And it will still be declaring the glory of God on Wednesday morning, even if you think an apocalypse is coming because one side or the other wins. The truth of the matter is the heavens will be unperturbed by what we do on Tuesday. That doesn't make it unimportant, but it does emphasize just how much more important the Lord is than all the stuff we do together. What the Lord does has declared His glory throughout all of history. And If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to be looking at Psalm 19. I'm going to be reading it from the King James, but you'll see it in a different translation on the screens while we're going through it, and that might help you as you're interpreting it, and I'll be paraphrasing as I'm going along anyway. And We're just going to take this psalm one piece at a time. You'll be familiar with probably every verse in the psalm, but not necessarily together. Uh, most people I know read this psalm, and, it, and it's for good reason, because the psalm sort of organizes itself this way. They read a third of it, or they'll read a half of it, but then they don't attach the other part to it because they seem so disconnected. But this first part, you'll see, is dealing specifically with the creation, with the evidence that those stars above, the heavens above, are carrying this persistent message about the glory of God that we should be attentive to, indeed, that we are attentive to, whether we acknowledge it or not, and, oddly, we don't even like to acknowledge it. For the, there's a very certain reason for that that we'll be talking about as we're going through the message. Then the second part we'll be talking about, you'll notice it's completely different. It leaves creation behind. And for the second half of the psalm, I know I've said it's in thirds, it is sort of, but it's also a half. So verses 1 through 6 go together, verses 7 all the way through 13 go together. And then verse 14 is sort of this tail end that almost doesn't make sense in the psalm. Obviously, the Lord knows what he's doing. It does make sense. It's the most important verse in the psalm, but we'll get to that at the very end only. So in these first two halves or so of the psalm, the first part talking about creation, the second part completely leaves that, that subject behind and speaks only about the written word of God, what scripture does for us. Why those two things come together to do what they do is what's so important in the conversation we're going to have today. So starting in Psalm 19, just these first six verses, first of all, notice how he describes the creation declaring this message about God. Because what we're going to discover in reading it is that the world, and I don't mean by that just the earth, 
but the creation as a whole, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, as it says throughout the Old Testament, or the way we're used to hearing it from just Genesis 1, the heavens and the earth, all of those things are comprehending, that is, both grasping the full of it and understanding the message of God that comes from creation. So here, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, the skies above, are revealing that they are His handiwork. Day after day is uttering speech. Night after night is showing knowledge. In fact, and you'll see in your translation, it's going to look a little different than this. You can translate this two different ways. Uh, one way implies that the, the skies don't have a speech or a language, and yet they declare the glory of God. The other way says the, the skies themselves have a speech. They have a language. They, they communicate words, and therefore the whole of creation hears the words they speak. Either way, the message is the same. There's nowhere to hide from the message that the heavens are declaring. Whether you say using words or without using words, it is communicating something just as clearly as if a person were speaking it to it. So in verse 3, there's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Then he creates this metaphor. So an analogy for us to understand just how pervasive, how comprehensive the message of the heavens is. To this point, it's, it's about the night sky and about the daytime sky. It's about what we see when we look up and see the magnificence of the heavens entirely. But now he's going to give an analogy about the sun so that we'll understand just how pervasive this message of the heavens is. So in verse 4, in the last half, in those, the heavens, he has set a tent, a tabernacle, for the sun. And the sun, now he's going to use a metaphor to describe the sun for us, is like a bridegroom, in verse 5, coming out of his chamber, you know, full of glory and ready for the beauty of the life that's to follow in the perfect marriage that all of you have experienced. So in verse 5, which is like a bridegroom, so it's good that you didn't nudge each other at that moment, as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber with that kind of light and optimism, but also like a strong man running a race, so that he's not just strong at the beginning, but his strength is apparent all the way to the end of the race. So the sun, once it comes up, dominates the sky until the very end of the day. So from one end of the heavens to the other. That's the idea in verse 6. So his going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit all the way to the other end of it. And there is nothing hidden from the heat of it. That phrase, nothing hidden from the heat of it, is the point we have to come back to in a moment. But starting up at, at verse 1, just for a second. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament reveals that it is His handiwork. I can remember when, you know, Ed was mentioning that uh, he used to, or do you, do you require everyone to call you the most right reverend, Ed, Jen? Okay, so whatever it is he, he, he demands of you, Ed and I would go, we would take students up to Colorado to ski. So I was in my 20s, he was in his 20s, we were having a great time, and we would take them, and they live, you know, we live in Dallas, so in Dallas you can see three stars. Uh, and that's about it. I mean, if Sirius on a good night, you can see it. It's a super bright star. Capella, you can see. But you can't see most of the stars. You can't see anything in the heavens. So the moon, when it shows up on a good night without, sky, star, without clouds, you can obviously see it. That's about it. You go to Colorado, you take them out of, a, out of the vehicle in, uh, under a dark night sky on top of the mountain when it's clear, and they look up, and they see this jeweled sky against a black satin backdrop, 
and realize that there are not three or 20 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 stars, but probably 10,000 stars visible to the naked eye, and they are in awe at the beauty of the heavens. And you can go through the physics with them and say, oh, okay, you see that dot over there that's sparkling, and uh, you see it as a burning ball of helium, right? You think of the physics of it. Nuclear fusion is the first thing to strike your mind, right? None of that's the case. Nobody looks up at the heavens and says, oh, look at all the balls of burning helium. No one says that. You look up at the heavens and you say, oh, my soul, look at how beautiful the sky is. I had a, I had a, a couple of friends back at a, a church I was at even before I knew Ed, and one of them was an atheist who became a believer as an astronomer. He, was, he did astronomy at the University of Texas at Arlington, and, and he would tell the, the, the guy that I knew, the friend that I knew, he would say to him, as an atheist, you know, when I get out uh, next to the telescope and I'm looking at the sky, the night sky, I just think to myself, I wish there were someone I could share this with. And my friend actually used that as a way to talk to him about the gospel and say, you know, actually, there is. It's the person who's inviting you to observe that these heavens have been created for more than just you. That recognition, that's part of what David is talking about here. The magnificence of the night sky, the enormity of the daytime sky, to look up at it and see that there's no way we created this. And to see in it, not just that it's enormous, and for them, they have no idea of light years. They have no idea of the distance of things. The, the image that's behind the words on the screen that you're looking at is a picture I took up in Colorado, actually, of the Great Nebula in Orion and the Running Nebula that's next to it. I love seeing those things. I love knowing that they're 1,300 light years away. If you want to think about how far away that is, our best satellite, our fastest moving satellite that we sent out not to be a satellite anymore, but to leave the solar system, you know, Voyager and then Voyager 2, when we sent out that, that object outside the solar system, you think, okay, well, it's going to go to another star. It's not actually going to be in the proximity of another star for 40,000 years. We've never sent out anything moving as fast as that, and it will take it four times as long as the entirety of recorded human history before it gets to the next star. If it were going to the closest star to us, it'd be about 10,000 years before it would get to that. The entirety of recorded human history, that length of time, to get to one star. And we're looking at families of stars in a nebula like this, which is inside of our galaxy. Those heavens, with all of those stars, with the magnificence of what they reveal, testify that somebody greater than us made this stuff. It's fairly obvious that that's the case. Paul capitalizes on that when he uses this passage to say the creation itself declares the things that can be known about God in Romans chapter 1. In a lot of Romans, he's simply making the point that Psalm 19 makes for us today, and we'll come back to that and point that out in just a second. But this part is fairly obvious. When you look up at the sky, you have to acknowledge somebody greater than us made all of this. And yet, look at the consequence of it. When we recognize this message, this communication from the heavens that says, with or without words, something we all understand, that the world was created by somebody greater than us, what's our reaction to it? Well, the sun, it says, is going forth like this bridegroom or strong man from one end of the heavens to the other, and is going forth is from one end of heavens to the other, and nothing can hide from the heat of it, he's saying that to Israel, which is very much like my home, Texas, 
Uh, when you're in Texas under the heat of the sun, you say there is nowhere to hide from the heat of the sun. You understand the analogy. And Israel is at the same latitude as, uh, as uh, Texas is. And so we experience the same kind of thing under the heat of the sun. In August, there's nowhere to hide for it, from it. You say, no, no, we, we can hide from it. We have air conditioning. And then you pay the air conditioning bill. And you realize you still didn't hide from the heat of the sun. When the sun comes up, the point is it's bearing down on the entire world in the way that the message of the heavens is bearing down on the entire world and there's nowhere to hide from it. The question is, why would you want to hide from the message of the heavens that's declaring the magnificent glory of God? Why wouldn't you want to go out and see it every night and say, this is what we are about. This of creation is what we are about. It's because of what Paul's point is and what David's point here is the part that we ignore. This is, this is the way Paul says it in Romans 1 when he carries it forward. He says, this is revealed from heaven against all men. Let me, tell you, let me replace the this in a second. But he says it in two steps. First, he says in verse 17, the righteousness of God in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. But from faith to faith, that's not the heavens. We're not talking about the heavens yet. So he says, when we want to understand the righteousness of God, we have to receive it from someone else. It, it moves from one person's faith to the next. So in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The very next verse says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which can be known of God has been revealed plainly in them. God has shown it to them. Because the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, specifically his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now think, think through this. He says, the righteousness of God is revealed, but it's revealed from one person's faith to the next. The wrath of God is revealed from the creation itself against those who know the truth, but they, they suppress it. They hide from it. In the same way we're hiding from the sun in Psalm 19. Why are we hiding from it? Well, the truth of God that's revealed in the creation, he says, entails four ideas. Three of them are stated. One of them is implied. Now, I'll show you what it is in just a second. But he says these four things are obvious in it. We know these things about God, the things that can be understood of him from the creation, specifically his eternal power. So we know that there is something eternal and way more powerful than we are that created the universe. We know this because we emerge in a universe that is so much greater than us. We know we didn't create it. We know from the beginning. Somebody else much bigger than us made this thing. We could just think, and by the way, if we had time, if we had 20, 30 minutes to just talk about it, the cosmological argument specifically that something other than the universe had to cause the universe to be and that thing itself could not have been caused by anything else. All of that says there is an eternal power that had to bring the universe into being. I would love to go through the details of, of you. I've taught that at colleges, secular and Christian, for the last 15 years. We don't have time to do that right now, but all it's doing is just fleshing out the details of what this psalm already says. When you stand under the heavens, you don't say, oh, look at the stars that I have made. <laughs> You acknowledge off the bat, oh, this world is much bigger than I am. And, and whatever made this is much more powerful than I am. 
The thing is, we could simply say, what made the universe is the force, Luke, you know, just some neutral object that runs the world or so on, except that when we look to the heavens, instead of seeing those burning balls of helium, we see beauty, and we see an invitation to commune, and we see order, and we see that in every part of creation, not even just in the heavens above, but in everything that's around us. Look, I don't, I don't care whether you're an evolutionist or a creationist. I do, but that would be a discussion for a different day. doesn't matter today. I don't care which way you look at it. The only reason you have a theory of evolution, the only reason it even exists as an option for us, is because we need something to explain what we all knew from the beginning, which is things look like somebody designed them on purpose. And if you want to explain the world where there's nobody designing it on purpose, then you're going to need a real humdinger of an explanation. And so we come up with evolution as an explanation, and it is. It's a very powerful explanation, but it doesn't explain away the fact that the evidence from the beginning compelled us to assume that somebody had designed this universe. And so Paul says, we are specifically aware not only of his eternal power, but also his divine nature that he did things on purpose. But if we have both of those things present, we also have something else, a question. If we know that somebody else made the universe and made it on purpose, then the question that follows, for which we have the answer in the passage, they are without excuse. But we don't have the question itself recorded, just the answer. But the question is, are we fulfilling what we were created for? Is the creation doing what the intent of the author was? And our answer is, mm, we are without excuse. We have failed. Well, in light of that, you can understand why when people are seeing this declaration of the glory of God, the contrast with his glory is our squalor. The contrast with his glory is our loss of the purpose for which we were created. We all know we have failed in one way or another, whether we call it sin and feel morally guilty about it or not, we know our lives aren't perfect. We experience it in the loss of those that we love. We experience it in our own failure to achieve the goals that we set for ourselves. Whatever it is, we all look at it and say, wow, that magnificent power who created this on purpose and had a design for it when he created it is so much better than me that we want to hide from the message of the heavens. But we can't. The message is still there. All of creation has comprehended the truth that God created us for a purpose we failed to measure up to, and all who are in the world have heard that message. I don't need to convince people they're guilty. People know they're guilty. They hide from it. They don't want to say it. They don't want to experience it. But that's already present. So what follows? So there's nothing that can hide from the heat of this sun, the message from God, that he is glorious and that we have failed him. That's what we're left with even in Romans chapter 1. Psalm 19, the second section. Notice nothing else about creation. Now we're done talking about creation. We are moving on to the law of the Lord. Everything here forward is about scripture. So in verses 7 through 13, it's just like Psalm 119, if you know it, where every single verse is about Scripture, the statutes of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. Every one of those references using all those different terms, the fear of the Lord, the mishpat of the Lord, they're all references to the Scripture. What do we learn about the Scripture? The law of the Lord is perfect, meaning completing. It finishes the thing. So where creation condemns us, the law of the Lord is doing the rest 
of what God wants to do. So the written word, the scriptures, the law of the Lord is perfect. The word of God is then completing the message. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise even the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments, the mishpat, of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then he gives an analogy, just like he did with the sun above, talking about creation. He gives it an analogy. Now he's going to give an analogy for us about the scriptures, but it's going to be to compare it to gold and honey. So he says, they are more desirable than the finest honey you could, uh, gold you could ever find. More desirable than the finest honey that you could ever find in verse 10. In verse 11, moreover by them, and now he gives the consequence of it, just like we did above, it makes us want to run and hide the creation from the glory of God. What does this do for us? By them your servant is warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who could understand his errors on his own? So I turn to you and say, Lord, cleanse me from hidden, secret, hidden. Same word that was used up in verse 6 when it said no one can hide from the heat of it. Here he uses the same word not to say no one can hide from the truth of your scripture, but instead to say the person who's been affected by your scripture now takes all of the things that were hidden in them and brings them out in the open to you and says, cleanse me from these things that made me want to hide before. Now I don't have to hide anymore because you've cleansed me. See, if creation is bringing to us this condemnation, Scripture is bringing to us redemption. Creation brings to us an awareness of our guilt. Scripture brings to us the means of salvation. And so he says in verse 13, And keep me away, keep back your servant, from presumptuous sins. Don't let them have dominion over me. Then I will be upright and I will be innocent from the great transgression. This is the part of the message Paul is communicating in the book of Romans in chapter 10 when he says, you know, this whole section in the middle of chapter 10 about salvation that we quote all the time where he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says, but how are they going to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they going to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach if they're not sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things? You know the, you know the passage. He concludes that section by saying, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Remember, just like he did in chapter 1, he said righteousness comes by faith. But he, but he says the judgment came through creation. He's doing the same thing in Romans 10 when he says, how, how is a person going to obtain salvation? Because the word of God has to get to them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the condemnation is universal. That's everywhere. We would like to think that somewhere in the world a person could simply come to salvation by looking at the heavens and worshiping God. They come to condemnation by looking at the heavens and recognizing there's a God they need to satisfy and can't. But they come to salvation when someone brings them the message from Scripture and says there is a God who loves you enough to send his own son into the world where we didn't even want him so that he would carry your sins for you, die on your behalf, and rise from the dead to offer life to you who were condemned to that death so that you could have peace with God. So that the judgment comes from creation, but redemption through the scripture itself. So you can see if you take Psalm 19, 1 through 6, and then 7 through 13, 
you have a complete psalm. If you look at it narratively, you look at it discursively, you look at it poetically in literary terms, however you want to say it, it's, all, it's done. Verses 1 through 13 are all you need, and it's perfect. It is complete. And then you got verse 14, like this leftover verse. Beautiful verse, but we should just make it a psalm to itself, right? Obviously not. The Lord knows what he's doing. So the question is, why do we have this third part? Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. First, just to verify, it's obvious this verse is intended for this psalm because of the way he concludes it. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And then who is the Lord? My strength or rock, that is the one with all the power who created this nature that brought me under condemnation. O Lord, my strength or my rock, it's taken both ways. And my Redeemer, the one who brought me salvation through the scriptures that he describes in the last half of the psalm. So you can see clearly, David knows what he's doing. He's, he's putting this ending on the psalm where he says, and we acknowledge that the Lord is the one who brought us the creation so that we were condemned, but also the scriptures so that we were redeemed and we recognize our salvation. And then we just stop at that and we think to ourselves, okay, so I understand. He's telling us about the creation and he's telling us about the scriptures so that we'll understand that our salvation is in our strength and our redeemer. And having had our salvation, we fulfilled the purpose for which we were created, right? But it's not that. Because what he says is, let the words of... So just think about this. The psalm says, this psalm says, that we should, and God does, let the words of creation itself be acceptable in his sight and declare the message of creation's condemnation on the world. And then he says, and let the words of Scripture be acceptable in his sight. And they are because it brings the message of salvation to everyone in the world. But after he says, let the words of creation and let the words of Scripture, then he says, let the words of... So you know where he's going next. It's the same thing Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount when he's standing with thousands of people who are listening to him sitting and standing and waiting to be fed and they're anxious to follow him because they've seen him feeding multitudes and they've seen him healing the sick and they've seen him calling followers like the disciples in, in Matthew 4. But in Matthew 5 when he begins the Sermon on the Mount he doesn't begin it by saying let me let me sell you on being a disciple. You know if you're a disciple you're going to be well fed and you're going to be healthy and I'm going to take care of you and everything's going to be good. He does the opposite. He gives them every reason not to follow him. He says, I know you're following me because I've been feeding people. You're following me because you think I'm going to give you prosperity. But you're going to be blessed when you follow me because you are poor. You're going to be blessed when you follow me because you are meek. You're going to be blessed following me because you are hungering and thirsting after things that you will not see satisfied in this world, but only in the next. He goes on to say, you'll be blessed when you're following me because you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness and for my name's sake. And you'll be blessed like the prophets before you who face the same martyrdom, who face the same suffering. Those are a bunch of reasons not to follow Jesus, you know. So come follow me. You'll be poor. You'll be hungry. You'll be thirsty. You'll be persecuted. You'll be as well known as those other people who were hacked to death by the people who didn't like them. That's all the reasons not to follow him. And then he says, but there is a reason to follow me because you'll also be the salt of the earth. And when the earth doesn't have any salt, there's nothing to season it. There's nothing to make it acceptable. You will be the salt of the earth. And then he says to them, and you will be, in the other analogy, you will be. So th these are the words that are coming from the creator of the universe. 
Jesus is not a neutral prophet standing on the side of the hill. He is the creator himself come down in human form and speaking to those who would follow him. The creator who said, on the first day, let there be light. So there's already light. But then on the fourth day, let's create the sun to be a light to rule over the day. And the moon to rule over the light by night. And also the stars. How many stars does he create in that moment? You know, in the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, just our local galaxy, that, that nebula that you were looking at, that nebula that is inside of our galaxy is just part of what's inside our galaxy. Our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. That one is 13,000 light years from us or so. 1,300, I mean, light years from us or so. So it's, it's in our own neighborhood, you know, our own wing of the, of the Milky Way. In the Milky Way, there are hundreds of billions of stars. In a, in a, with a B, hundreds of billions of stars. Each of those stars, on average, about like our sun. Our sun makes the planet Jupiter look like a marble. If our sun were a, a, a basketball, it would make Jupiter look like a marble. Jupiter would make the Earth look like a marble if it were a basketball. Well, I'm here to tell you, you don't even look like a marble next to the Earth. You're, you're, you're nothing. You're not even an indentation. E even in the language of Psalm 103, we understand that when we are eaten by the ground, the place where we were won't even remember we were here. That, that's how the psalmist says it. Don't, don't, don't kill the messenger. That's what he says. So we're nothing on a planet that's nothing next to a planet that's nothing next to the sun that's just this one in hundreds of billions of lights, and it gets only a phrase at the end of that verse in Genesis 1, and the stars also. You know, he created the stars also. And then, how many galaxies of hundreds of billions of stars are there? I heard Alex Filipenko say one time, he's a cosmologist and physicist from California, he said, you know, we're now trying to speculate whether, because you've heard the statement, there are as many stars as there are grains of sand on the earth. He said, what we're really trying to speculate about is whether there are as many galaxies as there are grains of sand on the earth. We don't know. I mean, it's all estimation from that point right the numbers are too enormous it's just absurd to think about numbers like that the god who created all of that those lights to rule over the night that light to rule over the day the god who created all of that did not stand on the side of the mountain and say the sun is the light of the world he did not say the moon by night is the light of the world he did not say a billion, billion, billion stars are the light of the world. He created all of those and looked at you and said, you are the light of the world. To that, David, our psalmist, said, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, true. The scripture is declaring the salvation of our God, true. But, O oh Lord, Please let the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. Your neighbor will not come to know Jesus Christ because they see the sun. They will not come to know Jesus Christ because God has written a perfect, infallible, and powerful word about salvation. They will come to know Jesus Christ because the words of your mouth testify to the light of the world. Your heart is acceptable in his sight and your life becomes their way into his truth.
I'm asking you to commit yourself to being that light in the world. Father, I am grateful for this time to spend with your people, and I pray that those who are here and do not know you as Savior would understand that you have illuminated the heavens, not only to bring our guilt, our awareness of our need, but also in your word to illuminate us to salvation and in the faith of those surrounding them right now to testify that Jesus Christ has changed us and will change you. And so I pray that they would visit with me at the end of the service with one of our staff members to say, I need to know, I want to know what it means to know Christ as Savior. And Lord, for believers who are in this room, I pray that you would convict us to pray in sincerity. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, you are my strength and my redeemer. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name.